0: I'm gonna begin with a reading of Psalm 2. May seem strange, two of the three mission sermons in this mission series I've done so far have been sermons on Psalms. You would think, this is the new covenant missionary effort. Why do you keep going back to the Old Testament? There is quite good reason for that, I hope to show you this morning. But let's look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2, which we are told by the apostles in Acts chapter four is a Psalm of David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That you would bless this, your word, to us as those who are your hearers, that your spirit would speak through this word into our own hearts and minds, that we would understand our own condition as rebellious sinners, that that is a global epidemic that leads to certain death and condemnation, that we would understand your gift of the son, the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham and David, the one who is your eternally begotten who has come to save us that we would look to him in faith, that we would repent of our sins, and that we would proclaim him to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, I contended that who God is is central to understanding the Great Commission, that we're given the Great Commission, and as those who have received it, we must understand who he is and what he has done Look at Matthew 28 with me briefly. Keep your hand in Psalm 2 and turn to Matthew 28 and verse 18, and let's look there again. As last week I told you about the Father, as we talk about who God is, we talked about the Father. Last week I want to talk about the Son this week in relationship to the Great Commission. Look at Matthew 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, we start to ask questions immediately as we look at this passage. Who is the one who gives Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. And last week we looked at that, that is the Father. But who is Jesus to follow up this week as with regard to the Son? Who is Jesus that he is rightfully the heir of all authority in heaven and on earth? Who is Jesus that we ought to make disciples of him, followers of him in every people, group, and nation? Who is he that we ought to be baptized in his name, placing him on par with the Father? Who is he that the nations ought to obey his word, that they should be taught to obey him? And to answer that question of who Jesus is I want to look this morning at Psalm 2. So I want to consider the person of Jesus, the person of the Son who becomes the Incarnate Christ, our Lord and Savior, by going through Psalm 2 today with you. And as we look at Psalm 2 I want to take it in three parts and then I want to give you some implications. So here's what I want to look at. I want to look at first the nation's rebellion against the Lord. The nation's plural. All nations, all peoples, have rebelled against the Lord. I want to look at that first. Second, I want to look at the Lord's gift of his Son as Savior and Lord to those same rebellious nations or peoples. Third, I want to look at the call to the nations to repent and believe in Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And then fourth, I want to look at the implications to Christian living and mission. So let's start with the first point. The nation's rebellion or the people's Rebellion against the Lord. Look at Psalm 2.1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? When he says nations and peoples, he is not just marking them off geopolitically. When I mean geopolitically, if you think about the geography of the 48 contiguous states, the United States of America, and then the two non-contiguous states being Alaska and Hawaii, you think, here's our geography. And when I say geopolitically, we talk about our politics, we have a constitution, we're a constitutional republic. We have a federal constitution and we have independent state constitutions, etc, etc. That's our geopolitical situation, we're known as the United States of America. Now you know all of that, you know that other nations are marked out in the same way, whether France or Great Britain or what have you. But he's not referring just to geopolitical nations here. He is referring to people groups ethnically, linguistically distinct peoples, so that you might have multiple tribes inside one set of geographical boundaries who speak independent languages. That's what he's speaking at. The nations and the peoples plot in vain. Now here's a question. Why start with this question? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Notice he's starting with a question, and it's a question that really is pointing to the insanity of sin, the insanity of rebellion. It's it's like he's saying, why would they be such fools? But they are. The nations and the peoples are fools. They're participating in vanity, raging against the Lord. Why would they be so insane? He goes on to say, verse 2, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst apart their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's interesting, this word for plot or devise, if you see that, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, the people's plotting in vain, etc. This word in verse 1, the people's plotting in vain or devising, is a kind of murmuring to oneself. It's a kind of angry complaining or meditation. Think about this. You know what plotting looks like when you think this way. You're sitting at home, or wherever it might be, murmuring internally about how things are not the way you want them to be, right? Even angrily complaining and meditating upon how things are not the way you want them to be. And maybe beginning to meditate upon the fact that God has not done what you would like him to do. And so now you're murmuring against him. Maybe he's restrained you from things you would like to participate in. What's interesting is that word that the people's plot in vain is the same word plotting is the same word in Psalm 1 and verse 2 when it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That meditating day and night is the same exact word as the people's plotting in vain. And it's a direct contrast. The moral character of the meditation in Psalm 1-2 is the opposite of the moral character of the activity of the peoples plotting in vain. It's a contrasting kind of meditation. The blessed man is meditating on the law of the Lord as his delight, all that God has to say. The nations are meditating on how the Lord is someone they would like to break free of, on how the Lord is someone they are disappointed with. Rather than meditating on God's word or God's rule as those who find God and his rule their delight, The nations are chafing under his rule and desiring to cast off his restraints. They have murmured in their hearts against God's rule rather than meditating in their hearts delightfully in God's rule. The kings and nations plot together to overthrow the Lord. They will be autonomous. They will be a law to themselves. That's why it says in verse 3 that they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They want to overthrow the Lord, Yahweh, that all caps Lord, and his anointed or his Messiah. They're walking together. What's interesting about this is the kings and the rulers are taking counsel together. They are literally walking together in the counsel of the wicked. See, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, And they're literally walking together in the council of the wicked. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. They are literally standing together in the way of the sinners. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And they're literally sitting together in the seat of scoffers or mockers. They have publicly plotted and declared the overthrow of the Lord. They have divested themselves of the reign of God. They will be sovereign self-rulers. They are, in fact, nothing like the blessed man of Psalm 1. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Psalm 1 tells you, here's what the blessed man looks like, and Psalm 2 tells you, no one in all the nations is that man. Rather than being the blessed man of Psalm 1, they are, in fact, cursed. They're cursed men, and the Lord will judge them. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and we'll look at that in a minute. See, they believe, the nations, the peoples of the earth, us, we believe we've cast off the Lord's restraint. We have mocked the Lord and overthrown him, and he sits in the heavens and he laughs. If they want to sit in the seat of scoffers or mockers, they should know. What he's saying is they should know that the Lord will scoff and mock on that great day. The Lord will have the last laugh. Do you hear the contrast? Blessed is a man who does not sit in the seat of mockers because the Lord will mock them. He is in the heavens mocking them even now. He will have the last laugh. He is the Lord. They are his creatures. Now, where does this sin, this lawlessness, this rebellion, this overthrow of God begin in human history? So that's a question we ought to ask. It began... In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve walked in the counsel of the wicked, the wicked, Satan, as they listened to his voice rather than God's. They stood in the way of the sinner, Satan, as they consumed the fruit he offered them rather than that which God offered them. They sat in the seat of the scoffer, Satan, as they decided it was wise to eat that fruit God had forbidden and to believe the lie that they won't surely die. In that act, Adam and Eve took counsel against the Lord and cast away his cords from them. That's where it starts. Now, in Genesis 11, we're shown how this sin impacts the whole of the globe, aren't we? And we're shown that before with Noah, but most specifically, how it affects the peoples of all the earth, of every tribe and tongue and nation. In Genesis 11, the people of the earth, if you remember the story, all had one language, And what did they do as one unified people of one language? Did they attempt to use that for the glory of the Lord? No, they attempted to use that to exalt themselves. They attempted to overthrow the rule of the Lord and make a name for themselves. Thus, the Lord judged them and scattered them and confused their languages. And here's the point. The nations, the peoples of the whole world, stand condemned, and you can mark them out by their distinct languages, showing God's judgment on mankind. This is global, universal sin and judgment. It is this cursed state of all nations, tribes, and tongues that is behind the promise that then comes to Abram in Genesis 12. I think sometimes we read the promise that comes to Abram, meaning exalted father, that's his name originally, in Genesis 12 completely and entirely disconnected from what just happened in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, God cursed all the nations of the earth and separated their languages. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abram and says, I'm gonna bless you, Abram, and through your seed, I'm gonna bless all the families of the earth. Or as it's picked up again in Genesis 17, I'm gonna bless all the nations of the earth. In fact, it is this scene in Babel that is behind Abram's name change. The Lord made a name for Abram, By changing his name from Abram, which meant exalted father, to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. Incidentally, that's why you see in the very next scene, Genesis 18, after Abraham's been told he's the father of many nations, that his seed will be the blessing of many nations, he goes and prays for and intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, two foreign nations. What do you think the author of Genesis is trying to show you? Abraham understood he was to be a blessing to the nations. The Lord will exalt the neighbor of Abraham through his offspring to bring about the salvation of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And in doing so, we're told in Exodus 9.16 that the Lord will exalt his own name among the nations. Now, while this passage in Psalm 2 looks back to the fall of man, Luke tells us that it also prophetically looks forward to the crucifixion of the Messiah and the persecution of his church. Look there again at verse 2 of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That word is the word from which we derive Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now keep your hand in Psalm 2, and look what Luke says that this was a prophecy of by turning to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. He's saying this is a prophecy of the crucifixion of the Messiah and the persecution of the church. Look at Acts 4, and if you will, turn to verse 23. Acts chapter 4, and in verse 23, the apostles are being persecuted and told not to speak any longer this gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read this after they are set free. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, that they're saying is, is that we see in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and now in the persecution of his church the fulfillment of the prophecy spoken by David from the Holy Spirit in Psalm 2. Now, what do they say about it? Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and utterly condemn and damn them and destroy them. Is that what they say? Look upon their threats. It's a fascinating response. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's an interesting response, isn't it? They know what Psalm 2 says, that this son will crush the nations who turn against him, that God sits in the heavens mocking the nations who are opposed to him. And yet, when they see the fulfillment of this psalm prophetically in the crucifixion of Jesus and the persecution of the church, their prayer is not, and now, O Lord, condemn them as you promised. Their prayer is, give us boldness to preach the gospel and stretch out your hand and save them. They pray to the Lord for boldness to preach the gospel. Now, there's a reason they pray this way in the face of man's wicked rebellion. They do so because of God's own response to man's wicked rebellion. See, what is God's answer to foolish, rebellious, wicked men across the earth? What's his answer? How does the Father respond to all of our sin? It's fascinating in Psalm two, go back there, because you're gonna see that his divine displeasure, his mocking laughter is answered by his own loving kindness in unmerited grace. And it leads to my second point, which is this, the Lord's gift of his son as Savior and Lord to those rebellious nations. Look at Psalm 2, 6. Here's what the Lord says as he mocks them. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, this is the promise God is pointing to here of the Davidic king. Promise in 2 Samuel seven thirteen and 14. David's greater son, the one who would be called Messiah, the anointed, the Savior, the one who would sit on the throne forever. See, the Lord had promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would come and would crush the serpent's head. Then he promised in Genesis 12 that the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22, that this offspring would be a blessing to all the nations. He promised in Genesis 49 that one from the tribe of Judah would be the messianic king and the scepter would not depart from Judah. This coming king he promised in 2 Samuel 7 would be the son of David who would rule and reign righteously over all the earth. This coming king would rule from his temple on Mount Zion. You see, this coming king will be a man from the nation of Israel or Abraham's seed, from the tribe of Judah, and from the house of King David. He's truly man, body and soul. He must be as the seed of the woman and the son of Abraham and the son of David. However, he's more than just Truly man. There's something more to be said about him than he's just man. Look at verse 7. And note who's speaking. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. Now in verse 6, it's the Lord speaking in his fury. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's the Lord, Yahweh, if you will, speaking there. Now in verse 7, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me. In other words, there's another speaker now. The I, who's being spoken to by the Lord, right? I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, who is the Lord speaking to? This, I'm going to contend, is the Father speaking to the Son. How do I know that? Look at the next phrase. The Lord said to me, now what did the Father say to the Son? You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. This is the Son speaking of what the Father said to him. What, what's fascinating about this? Fascinating on a number of levels. One, it's prophetic because the Son has not yet come in flesh. But two, it's even more powerful because the Father is speaking to the Son in eternity past. This is before the foundation of the world. He is the eternally begotten Son. The Son declares that the Father spoke an eternal decree to Him that He'd be Savior and Lord of the world. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. The Son of God is eternal. Thus, He has no yesterday or tomorrow. There is only today. That's why the Lord says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There's only an eternal day. Now, if you wonder, is this used elsewhere in the Old Testament this way? Yeah, in the Hebrew language, for example, in Isaiah 43, 13, you don't need to turn there, but Isaiah 43:13, uh, that word, same Hebrew word for day is used for eternity there. It, in the English Standard Version, we translate it this way, and I don't care for the translation. We translate it also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Now I don't care for that translation henceforth for this word day. It's not the best choice. Probably today is better. The King James Version in Isaiah 43, 13 is a little better. It says, before the day was, I am he. The New American Standard tries to get at it by saying, even from eternity, I am he. He is the eternal son of God. He is God, in essence, the Son in person. He is the one through whom the Father created all things and through whom the Father governs all things. He is the same substance with the Father. He is the full and final revelation of the Father. He is the prism that most clearly refracts the light of God's glory to man. He is sustaining the universe by the word of his power. By the way, I've only worked through the first three verses there of Hebrews chapter one. And here is what is so important to gather. Who Jesus is is foundational to what Jesus does. It is precisely because he is the eternally begotten son that he is fitting to condescend and take on humanity to be the messianic king and savior. It is because he is eternally God's son, sent by the Father to be incarnate as the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham and David, our Savior and Lord, that he rightly merits all authority in heaven and on earth. Look at Psalm 2.8. Ask of me. This is the Father speaking to the Son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He is merely to ask of the Father for what is his, and the Father will deliver it all to him. That is because he is the rightful heir of all things. And this asking is what we see Jesus doing, by the way. So keep your hand in Psalm 2, and look at John 17. Look at John 17, this high priestly prayer of Jesus. I want you to see Jesus, the Son asking the Father for all that the Father has eternally promised to him. John 17 and verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour meaning the time of his crucifixion, of his atoning death. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Look at John 17 and verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here we see in the high priestly prayer, if you will, the pulling back the curtain of eternity, and we see something spectacular, that the Son has come to declare and claim, if if you will, that which was rightfully given to him by the Father in eternity past. The Father said, ask of me and I'll give it to you. The Son has come and said, I have come, I've done what you've asked of me, now give it to me. So Jesus is eternally the begotten Son of God, whom the Father lovingly decreed in eternity to send and to become incarnate as man, as the second Adam, the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham and David. And upon fulfillment of his mission, being sent by the Father, he now received what was promised to him in that eternal decree of the Father. That's why Jesus stands at the mountain after the resurrection, having been declared to be the Son of God in power. Vindicated First Timothy 3:16 before all, if you will, the heavens and the earth, and says, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me." And that leads to my third point: The call to the nations to repent and believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord." Look at Psalm two and verse nine, "Speaking to the Son, the Father speaking to the Son, you shall break them, that being the, them being the nations, with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in here. Now, let's note some of the details here. First, he is the king and the judge. This rod that he wields, you shall break them with a rod of iron, is the same Hebrew word for scepter. Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples or the nations. He is holding, if you will, the messianic scepter, that rod with which he judges as king. The nations must be warned that they ought to serve him. They ought to fear him and serve him and pay him homage. They ought to, if you will, bow before him and kiss his feet and honor him as king. The peoples are being called to repentance for their murmuring and plotting against the Lord and his Messiah. They're being called to repent before the king's justice is unleashed upon them in his full consummated wrath. So they're being called to repent of. Now, I've heard many pastors and scholars of late preaching that the gospel, the good news is this, that because the king has come, his kingdom has come. See, the king is here, so therefore the kingdom of Christ is here, and that is the gospel. Now now listen to where they get that from. For example, in Mark 1 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now what's Jesus proclaiming? The gospel of God. Now listen to what he says, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So these scholars will say, it is good news that the kingdom of God has come, that is the gospel. They go on to argue that evangelistic or missionary efforts which narrowly focus on individual salvation are missing the mark. The claim is that we have a truncated gospel, and we have truncated it by preaching this narrow application of believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, never mind Paul said that to the Philippian jailer. It's truncated. You see, we haven't cared enough for the physical needs of people. We're not focused enough on, Kingdom-building efforts. I defy anyone, by the way, to go find any passage anywhere in the New Testament or old that tells you to build the kingdom. Never once. They're all passive. Only thing you're ever told to do is proclaim the kingdom. That's the only active thing you're ever told. That word about kingdom is receive the kingdom. You're given the kingdom. You're saved into the kingdom. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You proclaim the kingdom. That's the only active thing. You don't build it. You know who builds the kingdom? Jesus, I will build my church. But see, we're told we're not focused enough on kingdom-building efforts. What is needed is a gospel of social justice, of social renewal, of societal transformation. Thus, the mission of the church is weakened if you're focused on preaching a gospel of forgiveness of sins. Now, I, I think you're picking up on this. I strenuously object to that. Why? Because the gospel of the kingdom of Christ, having come, is only—please hear this—is only good news— if you're his friends, if you're citizens of his kingdom. It is manifestly not good news if you're his enemies, if you're the seed of the serpent. Caring for the physical needs of the enemies of Christ, apart from the preeminent concern for the salvation of their souls, is no real missions effort. His kingdom is not of this world, it is a spiritual kingdom. It is the kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. That's why if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Thus, working towards societal transformation, hear this, working towards societal transformation is never commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ. Never. Working towards societal transformation is never modeled by the apostles nor the early church. Never. Rather, we are tasked with preaching the answer to a simple question. If the king has come and he's the judge of all things, how do we go from being his enemies to being his friends? How do we find salvation from the wrath to come? And how is that done? We trust in Him. Look at the end of Psalm two twelve. Blessed are all. Last phrase, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We take refuge in Him. We find here at the end of Psalm 2 that we are not the blessed man of Psalm 1. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Did you hear that? He is the one who delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it day and night he is the blessed man who heard the decree from heaven, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. He is the blessed man who said, it's my food to do my father's will. He is the blessed man who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, but in all that he does, he prospers. See, with Adam, with Israel, and with all peoples, we were under the curse for rebellion against God's righteous law. But Jesus is the second Adam, he is the man who obeyed the Lord, who was tempted in every way yet without sin. He is the blessed man who knew no sin. Yet he is the blessed man, now hear this, he is the blessed man who voluntarily went to the cross and became the curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is every man or everyone who's hanged on a tree, Galatians 3.13. Jesus went to the cross as the only Truly blessed man and became the curse for us, judged as a sinner, accursed, condemned in our place. For our sake, he, that being the Father, made him, that being Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Hear the exchange? The cursed, unrighteous man becomes declared the righteousness of God. Why? Because the blessed, righteous man becomes declared sin and takes the curse upon himself in our place. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. He was vindicated before all the creation at his resurrection. He was shown to be holy, innocent, and undefiled. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, and he ascended to God's right hand to be coronated as king. And Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, as the messianic king, commanded something specific to be preached to all the nations. You want to hear what he wants preached to all the nations? Look at Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Look there. And verse 46, the end of the Gospel of Luke. It is, if you will, Luke's equivalent of a Great Commission. There is some kind of equivalent in every Gospel to the Great Commission. Here's Luke's equivalent. Verse 45, then he, that being Jesus, opened their minds, their minds being the apostles, those who were there, to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance... And forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So, we are not being narrow to preach the gospel of forgiveness of sins for individuals in every nation in an unnecessarily narrow way. We are being narrow in exactly the way in which Jesus commands us to be. We're being obedient to the command of our Lord. We must declare that the Son is Lord and Savior of all the earth, that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, that He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, that He's been given this because the Father decreed in eternity to give it all to Him, and that it's fitting that the Father did as Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Further, that He became man as the second Adam, and He fulfilled what the Father gave Him to do. He alone is Savior and Lord for every tribe and tongue and and nation, listen, there is no other, therefore, we tell people, repent of your sins and look to Jesus, for blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That leads to my final point, the implications of this to Christian life and missions, and I just want to give you some quick implications. First, all the nations and peoples of the earth have rebelled against the Lord. You hear that? That should be obvious by now, but I'm going to give you this implication. All the nations and peoples of the earth have rebelled against the Lord. All. And when I say all, I mean all. Listen, there are no noble savages. None. No one is righteous. No, not one. All men are condemned and without excuse, including every man, woman, and child from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including you and me. Sin is the great democratizing force that has leveled us all before the bar of God's just wrath. Second implication Jesus is the only Savior for all peoples, for all the nations. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved precisely because of who he is. Thus we understand that the exclusivity of Christ drives us to the need to proclaim him to all peoples. Please hear this. It irritates people when we say it. But every people group in the world is damned apart from Christ. The only hope for any people group is Christ. That's what Jesus says. Don't shoot the messenger. The people already did that when they crucified him. Third, in Jesus, the Son of God became incarnate. And thus, our missionaries must humbly identify with their people group. In other words, the incarnation leads to humble identification with the people group to whom you're going. Listen, Jesus identified with us body and soul. He spoke the language of the people with whom he walked. He lived among them and knew their culture and their worldview. We ought, in like manner, identify with the people to whom we go. So, some people will call this incarnational ministry. I hate that term. We call it incarnational ministry at Radius to my great objection because the incarnation is not a ministry method, the incarnation is a historical event. The Son of God miraculously became man. And I'm not going out reincarnating. That's weird to say. How am I trying to say it? You get it. I'm not becoming the son of God for people incarnate, you follow me? I'm identifying with them. We need to make a similar commitment to knowing the language and culture and worldview of the peoples. William Carey, the great missionary to India, and really the father of modern missions, wrote something with some of his friends who were also missionaries to India called the Sarampore Agreement. I'm not sure if you pronounce it Sarampore. It's just if I, if I say it phonetically by how it's spelled, it's spelled like Sarampore Agreement. They, they read this together, this agreement that they made three times per year. They actually came together as missionaries in India three times a year, and they would read this agreement together publicly so they wouldn't lose sight of what they're doing. There are several articles to it. But listen to how they put the need to know language and culture in Article 2 of their agreement. That's what they said. It is very important that we should gain all the information we can of the snares and delusions in which these heathens are held. By this means we shall be able to converse with them in an intelligible manner, to know their modes of thinking, their habits, their propensities, their antipathies, the way in which they reason about God and sin, holiness, the way of salvation in a future state, to be aware of the bewitching nature in their idolatrous worship, feasts, songs, etc., that it's of the highest consequence if we would gain their attention to our discourse and would avoid being barbarians to them. This knowledge may be easily obtained by conversing with sensible natives, by reading some parts of the works, and by attentively observing their manners and customs. In other words, we need to know this language and these people and their customs and their culture. We need to know them so that we can sensibly speak to them, so that they know what we're hearing when we speak. Now, listen, what they're saying is if the Son of God can humble him in such a way, it's not too big of an ask for us to do the same thing. Next implication, Jesus commanded us to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness in his name to all nations. This is gospel work. Notice we're to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness and repentance. It's gospel work. Our message is good news, not good advice. We are not to go into all the world and share good advice. Here's how you have a successful marriage. Here's how you have a successful business. Here's how you overcome the need for modern medicine through some voodoo thing you got going on. Now, you guys know what I'm talking about, okay? That is not what we're supposed to go out there sharing. Here's the good news. Thus we proclaim, herald, announce the good news. We're not sent to do social work. We're not sent to encourage people to better their law keeping and thus improve their societal and cultural conditions. We rejoice when the gospel transforms a culture, if even for a time. Yes, that's true. We believe that gospel work among a people can transform a culture or society. We've seen it happen. However, there is no command given to the church to go into all nations and preach the gospel of social transformation. Not one. We're to preach the gospel of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and expect that the Spirit will do the work among those people that He chooses to do in His sovereign goodness. Should we love people? Yes, there's a command to love people. That's not a gospel command. That's a law. Love your neighbor. So if you see your neighbor sick or hurting in need, help them because you love them. But that isn't the Great Commission. That's just the law that's always been. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That isn't going to save anybody. That's the command that we fail to keep, that we need saving because we fail to keep. This is precisely, by the way, what the apostles did, which we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. But for now, listen to this excerpt from Article 5 of William Carey's Serampore Agreement. Listen to what he said it'd be very easy for a missionary to preach nothing but truths. And that for many years together without any well-grounded hope of becoming useful to one soul. The doctrine of Christ's expiatory death and all sufficient merits has been and must ever remain the grand means of conversion. This doctrine and others immediately connected with it have constantly nourished and sanctified the church. Oh, that these glorious truths may ever be the joy and strength of our own souls And then, they will not fail to become the matter of our conversation to others. Finally, Jesus has commanded us to teach the nations to obey Him. Listen, we're commanded to teach the peoples to obey their king, that's true. But note the order. Here are the means. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, you ready? Go, that's part of the command of make disciples, go and make disciples. Now here are the means to making those disciples. When you go and make disciples of all nations, here are the means, baptizing and teaching baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Note the order. Baptize, then teach them to obey. We baptize those who believe and repent precisely because they are now identified with Christ. And until they have repented and turned to Christ and been born again into this spiritual kingdom, there is enemies. Thus, we are not calling the enemies of Christ to obey. That's what they failed to do. We are calling them to believe, then to obey, then to obey. Conversion precedes obedience in the same manner that life precedes activity. What did you do before you were alive? Nothing. What can spiritually dead people do before they're spiritually alive? Nothing. Dead men don't do anything, hear that? Of any spiritual good. And we must believe the gospel, be born again by the grace of God in Christ, in order to walk in the good works for which God has recreated us. Inasmuch, please hear this, inasmuch as good works are done in the flesh by a man who has not been born again, that man's works are in opposition to God's grace. Please hear that. The so called good works of the unbelieving, Isaiah calls filthy. Rags. He does not call the good works of believers filthy rags. He calls the good works of unbelievers filthy rags. Your good works are accepted in Christ by the grace of God because they're empowered by the Holy Spirit who's given you life. But the good works of an unbeliever trying to merit favor with God are filthy rags. The peoples to whom we go need to be taught to repent of their evil deeds and to repent of their damnable good works. We should never teach them to obey Jesus before they've believed in Jesus. In fact, I'm going to say this, The most, and I'm coming after this because there is a predominant method in the missions movement today, missions world today, that tells you to teach people to obey first. Then after they've obeyed enough, now they're called believers. And I want to say this, and I'm going to say this, I'm saying this, you know, if you will, I'm putting it on blast to the entire missions world. You ready? The most gospel-denying activity we could participate in is to encourage unbelievers to be obedient to God before they come to faith in Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is that thousands of our missionaries, probably unbeknownst to them, because I want to say that they're likely well-intended people, are participating in a method that systemically, at its root, denies the gospel. Unbelievers need to be taught to look to Jesus Christ for new life, the forgiveness of sins, and reconciliation with God. Then, as those who are born again, as baptized believers in Jesus Christ, we teach them to obey everything He commanded them. Listen, if we lack clarity here, sovereign grace, we lose the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? May we believe the gospel and proclaim the gospel to others, both here and in the nations. Let me pray. Father, we we ask that we would humbly, gratefully receive the grace of God in Christ for what it is. We are rebellious, sinful, justly condemned people to whom you gave your Son to save us, to whom you gave your Spirit to unite us to him through faith to give us life. We are thankful for the salvation we know in him, that free grace that Christ has purchased for us at the cross, completely unmerited by us, yet given to us gratuitously. We pray that we would look to your Son as our Savior and Lord and that we would proclaim him to others. We pray that you would help us to guard from confusing the law and the gospel. Help us to remember that the world has including ourselves, guilty of sinning against the law, of transgressing the law, of rebelling against your law, and that you have sought us out because of your great love for us and the giving of your Son, who purchased grace for us at the cross. May we announce that good news to them, trusting your Spirit to give them life, to give them eyes to see and ears to hear. And as those who are new disciples, who we see are baptized in faith in Jesus Christ, May we teach them faithfully to obey everything you've commanded. May we trust that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.